This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, now a podcast on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of book publishing world. We're here for you, and we want to answer your questions, so send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com, or tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's pubwklyradio, on Twitter. Today, we'll be talking with Chuck Wendig, the author of Urban Fantasy Novels, The Blue Blazes, and Unclean Spirits. Then, I uh, will be talking to you about uh, music books coming up this fall. But first, here's this week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. And as usual, no surprise at all, Dan Brown is at number one with Inferno for the ninth straight week. There's uh, a few interesting debuts on the uh, fiction list, though. Right under that uh, is Brad Thor's Hidden Order, a thriller, and then Catherine Coulter's Bombshell, uh, which is an an interesting choice to see at at number three. It's definitely a bombshell of a book itself. Uh, After that, it's all books that we've seen before. Uh, We have James Patterson, Khalid Husseini. Neil Gaiman moves from number seven to number six with The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Um, But other than that, it's a bunch of Jockeying for position until we get down into the teens. Right. Uh, and one of the books that I uh, have seen that's debuted at number 15 this week is Stephanie Ivanovich's Big Girl Panties. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because she's Janet Ivanovich's niece. No kidding. Yep. Uh, and a, wow. And a fine writer in her own right. Uh, we gave Big Girl Panties a starred review. Um, it's about a woman who uh, is grieving the death of her husband. And while he was dying, she basically ate to da- handle her grief. And now she's big and she wants to be smaller. And during a very uncomfortable flight in coach class, she meets a personal trainer who happens to be seated next to her. And he offers to help her slim down and they fall in love. And this is not your, your typical, you know, once she's skinny, then she's lovable romance. It's very much about uh, finding ways to accept all body types, all body shapes, and really overcome your prejudices. In fact, at first the guy's like, oh, who's this fat chick who's going to be sweating on me the entire plane flight? And he has to really accept that she's a person, um, and uh, she's a a good person and the right person for him, regardless of how she looks. Is this different for for romance novels or or, or these kinds of novels? I mean, would it usually be the the uh, protagonist then wanting to slim down to to get to that quote unquote ideal body shape i think it depends on the book um, some books, uh, you're definitely going to see a lot of sort of buying in to this idea that you have to look a certain way or behave a certain way in order to be lovable. But more and more often, actually, in romance now, uh, I'm seeing a lot of acceptance of diversity in all of its forms and a lot of acceptance of people sort of warts and all. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, and and you know, setting aside judgment and saying, you know, this is, this is who this person is. And often that's the challenge that couples have to overcome 
in romances is getting past their first prejudices, their first judgments. Uh, I, I just actually assigned a book. I haven't seen the review yet, but it's called Dangerous Curves Ahead. Um, and it's about a larger woman who dumps her judgmental boyfriend, opens a clothing store for fat women, and uh, decides that this is, this is who she is. She's big and she's proud. Um, and you know the the guy that she ends up with uh, doesn't try to change her. Like that's that's very important is that he accepts her for who she is. Uh, so I I really hope that that's a sea change and that this book is sure. emblematic of the trend. Uh, and the Publishers Weekly Review of Big Girl Panties says uh, quality writing, memorable characters, hot sex scenes, and an emotionally satisfying story add up to a marvelous gem. So that's number 15 on our fiction bestseller list and definitely something to keep an eye out for. Fantastic. Now, I was going to ask with the uh, Rowling book, or at least the, uh, the, uh, this week was uh, uncovered that uh, Rowling did in fact pen this this. Uh, uh, kind of military history novel, or I guess it was a thriller, but, uh, and, and, and bookstores have been scrambling, uh, to actually get copies in stock. Uh, although eBooks have been, uh, I wouldn't say flying uh, off the shelves because they aren't, but flying through the wires. Um, so uh, is there a chance, I wonder if, you know, if we might see this book on next week's bestseller list or perhaps the week after? We might. It's definitely possible. It's not on this week because this has the data from the past week. Right. And, and those sales only just started to take off, I think, over the weekend. But um, we're, we're definitely going to keep an eye out for that. And oddly, you know, it may just be a quirk. But if you go all the way down on the children's list to position number 90, it's Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And the only reason this is notable is that last week it was number 99. Um, so perhaps Rowling's name being in the news is still going to boost all of her books. Maybe people going, oh, right, the Harry Potter lady. You know, I never read those. Maybe I'll give them a try. Sure. So in nonfiction, we're looking about the same thing as you are in fiction. In fact, our first seven uh, slots is the exact same seven they were last week. Uh, we've got a lot of duck books, or at least two of them, on the list, which is still a surprise to me that that there are not just one but two titles based on this A&E uh, series. Uh, but people are still buying them. But at number eight is a book uh, by Chuck Klosterman. I wear the black hat. Uh, grappling. Uh, the subtitle is uh, "Grappling with Villains, Real and Imagined." And Chuck Klosterman, I, I, I want to say, a decade uh, over a decade, decade and a half ago, first came on the scene as a music writer with uh, uh, a book about heavy metal uh, from the Midwest. Uh, and uh, Fargo, Rock City, from Fargo, and. Since then, that just kind of catapulted him into this is this is this is a demonstration of how one book really can catapult someone into a whole other career. He was writing for a local magazine or I'm sorry, newspaper about music. This book came up, Rolling Stone, uh, I believe it was, uh, asked him to come on board, and he wrote another uh, music book. But then he just started editing, you know, writing uh, essays, a couple of novels, and this is the most recent one he's now the um uh he's the ethicist uh, uh writes the ethicist column for the new york times magazine uh and he also writes about sports and pop culture for esp and in this book i mean this is a book that I, it seems like whatever chuck Klosterman 
writes just, just seems to hit on the bestseller list. And uh, he's not what you would necessarily consider a you know a um, mass appeal writer, but he's got enough fans, enough people who really like his his insights uh, that they just kind of buy his books. And and this one, you know, we we said this was a little bit of a mixed bag. We 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 like the book a lot. Our reviewer liked the book, uh, but but said. In so many words that, that if you know if it were someone other than Chuck Klosterman writing, we may not care as much. And and here he is. He writes about uh, certain things like uh, why the Eagles is are, are the the band, the music band, the Eagles are the absolute worst band in the U.S. and why. And, and then he goes <laughs> back and forth and waffles on that. Um, where in the end he he comes to realize that you know what I don't really hate them. I don't like them still, but there's really no reason to hate them. But, but he's able to do this in so many essays where he writes about music. And there's, I think, two or three uh, music essays here. And one, he talks about a year by year, at least for 10 years, of bands that he hated uh, for various reasons and why he might have come back to liking them again. But, but, but uh, I mean, he's, he writes... Um, about Machiavelli, he writes about uh, Bernard Goetz, who was the uh, subway vigilante in the uh, 80s, you might remember. And um, so he does. He talks about villains, uh, real and imagined, and he himself says he wears the black hat in some way. So that's number eight. And that is one of the, uh, that's the only new, uh, that's the only debut that we have on the list, all the way down to 25 or even 30, I think it is. So. That's the one book we have. Now, looking ahead a little bit, uh, looking at what's, uh, uh, what's on the list this week, we've got um, Growing Up Gronk, a family's story of raising champions uh, by uh, uh, Gordy. These are football players and uh, who had played for um, uh, the Denver Broncos, Cleveland Brown. This is basically five brothers who play football. And this book, I think, is going to uh, top, is going to get on the list somehow. Uh, 75,000 copies printed. Um, And then one thing that really kind of strikes me, and I remember reviewing Rafi Esquith's book, or at least handling the review of that. He's a pretty well-known public school teacher in Los Angeles who teaches fifth grade and brings to them music, Shakespeare, theater, and and he's really revamped the way he teaches people, and he's written the books. Uh, the last one was called uh, teach like your hair's on fire, where he he gets teachers to say, "Look, teach like this is the last grade you'll ever teach. Teach them this way." And um, this is his fourth book, and it's called "Real Talk for Real Teachers: Advice for Teachers from Rookies to Veterans." Uh, "Quote: No retreat, no surrender." Is this is this a tagline? And we gave the book a starred review, and uh, he seems to have a big following, and no matter. What he's got people who are following him to um, to try and change how how kids are being taught right now. So he's a really positive force, and I, I think this is going to show up on the list somewhere, uh, maybe somewhere in the top twenty. And I think that's basically what we have for uh, for nonfiction. And I see we have a couple of uh, uh, fiction here: uh, Dan Silver, The English Girl. 
and uh, a couple of others. Yeah, the English Girl, they're printing half a million copies for the first run, which is pretty impressive. And yeah, that's, that's substantial. That's significant. Uh, the novel's called The English Girl. It's by Daniel Silva. And uh, I'm definitely seeing another couple of sort of stalwart names on the list. Danielle Steele has mm-hmm. another book coming out. And uh, maybe someday Danielle Steele will write a book that's not a bestseller. But I don't think that day has come yet. And uh, the other book that I'm noticing on there by someone who I think of as a perennial bestseller, though perhaps his star is setting a little bit, is Terry Brooks. Mm. Uh, he's a, an, an epic fantasy author who's been doing this for a very, very long time. And uh, in this case, the book is Witch Wraith, and it's the latest Shannara book. So if you've heard of The Sword of Shannara, which I think you wrote 25 or 30 years ago now, mm. um, those, are, those are just giant epic fantasy books that have been around for a long time and uh, been collected readers for a long time. So I don't have the first printing numbers on those, but I'd say that that's also likely to do quite well. But yes, I definitely the book that we're all going to be looking out for is by Robert Galbraith, aka J.K. Right. Rowling. Yes, exactly. So I think it'll be interesting to see whether or, or where that hits. And uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, though it's not necessarily relevant to our list, our list is powered by Nielsen BookScan, which is a company that collects data from a variety of sales outlets and you know, extrapolates that to, to decide what's a bestseller and what's not. And um, the New York Times has a slightly different way of going about their list. And the reason I mention this is that uh, there's an indie, an indie book, um, and uh, which is about a, a, a machine that predicts how you die, um, the machine of death. And uh, the the first book in the series, the first collection of machine of death stories, was published entirely independently and the new book which is called this is how you die is coming out from a mainstream publisher and they're trying to prove that it's a bestseller Uh, even though the outlets that would usually provide data for the bestseller lists are not necessarily bearing that up so the authors the editors of the book have been asking all of their readers to buy the book and then send in their sales receipts and they're trying to collect this mountain of evidence to prove that it's a bestseller and get it on the New York Times bestseller list. I have no idea whether they'll succeed, but I think it's a fascinating effort. That really is. I mean, just like, I, I mean, it seems like, you know, some, some people will have their, all their friends go out and buy books just to try and get on the bestseller list. And here is something that, for, according to the publisher, whoever is actually making those numbers and for some reason not making it on the bestseller list, which is, is important for them for, for future books and, and uh, just to show, you know, whoever, what, where the book is and how popular it is. I think it's just an interesting sort of snapshot of where the industry is right now. Here are these people who've done both indie publishing and traditional publishing who've uh, clearly have this enormous fan base and one of the, uh, or or two of the editors are uh, webcomic creators and they have Mm. so many fans. Um, They they go to places like San Diego Comic-Con and they draw a huge crowd but they're working on a book and because of that, they're having to to sort of work the system, basically. And they're saying, all right, fine, we'll work the system. Uh, We will go out and we will get the numbers to be on the bestseller list because people in the system think that's cool and mm. we will we will work within the system to work with this big publisher and and you know take advantage of the resources that a big publisher has but they're doing it in this very indie way this very grassroots way and um, I think 
you know, it's, it's just like, that's a really 2013 moment. I don't know if a moment like that has quite happened in publishing before or whether it will again. There's, there's always the question of how bestseller lists are built in the digital era, whether it makes sense to have different formats of books separated out on the bestseller list or whether the ebook sales are just as important as the hardcover sales and they should all be collected together. These are all questions that we're trying to answer right now. So it was. I just thought that was an, an interesting moment. Oh, that really is. It's really, and we'll see next week how this bears out. Absolutely. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. And I'm Rose Fox. Next up, Chuck Wendig will tell us how he blends crime fiction with the supernatural and maybe also talk to us a little bit about teaching writing, whether it's possible and how to do it. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Chuck Wendig in the office with us. He's the author of several urban fantasy novels, most recently, The Blue Blazes and Unclean Spirits. Thank you for joining us, Chuck. Well, thank you for having me. Um, So how did you end up with two books coming out nearly at the same time? Uh, I have a disease, and I write a lot. I I, (laughs) I feel like I have some sort of addiction to writing and so uh, I've been fortunate enough to make some hay from that. Uh-huh. And so tell us a little bit about these two books and how they relate to your other work. Well, um, Unclean Spirits is a book about a man who is uh, trying to get his revenge against the gods um, for the position they've put him in, uh, him and his family. Um, it's a uh, part of a shared world series that uh, I, I wrote the first book, the flagship book, and then um, helped design some of the world building around that. And then from there, uh, other writers will pick up the, the ball. And actually, there's already a novella out called Drag Hunt, which is about mm-hmm. um, the coyote, uh, the god coyote. And uh, it's a novella, it's an e-novella out by uh, Pat Kelleher. So, And then second, Blue Blazes is an original piece of uh, uh, fiction for me. Um, with Angry Robot Books about a uh, takes place here in New York City. A uh, guy named Mookie Pearl sort of stands at the the intersection between the criminal underworld and the very mythic monstrous underworld, and it's about his uh, his battles against his own daughter and uh, what that means for the fate of the city. Now, I was looking at the promotional copy for these books, trying to do a little research before we talked. Uh, I saw the copy for the Blue Blazes says, nothing stops Mookie when he's on the job. And the copy for Unclean Spirits says, nothing is going to stop Kaysen from getting back what's his. <laughs> so I, I feel like there's a little bit of a trend here of the, the unstoppable, maybe not hero, but protagonist. And so I'm wondering what kind of immovable objects you, you pit these unstoppable forces against. Oh, that's funny. I didn't both two different publishers in there. The similar uh, similar veins there. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, I do like characters that are driven, characters that are uh, motivated with a great deal of agency as opposed to characters who are a uh, leaf in a stream, so to speak. Um, I, I want characters who have uh, big things to accomplish and big things in their way. Uh, and so they're, they're seriously uh, motivated to get those things done. Um, you've also written two other novels, which are Blackbirds and Mockingbird. Can you yes. tell us a little bit about those? Sure, sure. Um, they were actually my uh, my debut original novels, uh, starring a um, a character named Miriam Black, who is a a woman who can see how you're going to die when she touches you, and um, predictably that makes for a, a very socially maladjusted uh, person. She's very fun to write. It's their, um it's about her quest to sort of uh, figure out whether or not she's a slave to fate or an agent of free will. Um, and by the end of the first book, Blackbirds, I'm not really spoiling it, I don't think, but she becomes sort of very clearly um, an avatar of free will. But that is not something that comes uh, cheaply or easily to her. 
You've written some books with male protagonists and some with female protagonists, uh, and usually those are seen as, in some ways, almost two different subgenres of urban fantasy. Uh, but it sounds like you're pretty comfortable moving back and forth between them. Do you, do you see a difference in the kind of stories you write? I don't necessarily think there's a difference in the way I'm writing them, but I do, when I read them, I do see the, the distinction that you're talking about. I don't think it's universal, but I, I think it's there. Um, you know, obviously, they're different characters and with different problems, but that's not necessarily given over to their um, gender in this case. So, but uh, I don't really approach them differently. I just approach them like, you know, I try to write complex and interesting characters um, and put them in that world and put them in their context. Um, so, in addition to novel writing, you do game design, screenwriting, and you're something of a social media star. So, <laughs> is that <laughs> I, what they call it? Uh-oh. Well, you know, I'm, I'm so, internet famous with air quotes, but around sure, it. Sure, yeah. sure. Um, so, tell us how you juggle those different gigs. Uh, very, very carefully. It's like a it's nitroglycerin. Now, um, I haven't done a whole lot of game design in the last year or so. I've been focusing predominantly on script work and novel work. Um, but I did start um, and cut my teeth freelance writing on games, both pen and paper games. And then I moved into some, some video game design. And then also some transmedia game design stuff. Narrative, um, sort of narrative, almost like choose your adventure type of stuff. Uh, and then the script writing sort of came out of that. Actually, the script writing came out of uh, Blackbirds was a novel that I tried writing for like five, six, seven years, and it was terrible. I couldn't get anywhere with it, and I, I really wasn't able to finish it in a, in a conclusive and satisfactory way. So I decided to cheat and apply for a screenwriting uh, contest. And, and the, the prize for the contest, which in retrospect is a terrible prize because it's like homework, you get a year's mentorship with a screenwriter. So it's like you suddenly have to actually do work for a year, um, which for a writer is kind of awesome. But ultimately, it's like, oh, God, now I've got things to do. Like, can't I just win a, a pony or something? Um, so I, I tried this, and the goal was to win the screenwriting mentorship with this screenwriter who had, who had written some pretty significant films. He had written the first two uh, Grudge films, and he had uh, done a, a Jack Ketchum adaptation. Uh, and it turns out he was, while in Hollywood, he was local to me in Pennsylvania. So I was like, really kind of eager to do this, and I, I knew he was really good with adaptations. So I thought, well, I want to adapt my own unfinished, horrible novel into a screenplay format so I could figure it out and then back into novel format. And so I was, it was Blackbirds. And so I did actually somehow manage to uh, win the contest and I did win the mentorship. Um, and over the course of the year, I, I, I managed to actually figure this book out to crack this nut. And, uh, by the end of it, actually, I turns out I, I really liked screenwriting. So, um, uh, Steven Susco, the, the, uh, the mentor, um, he hooked me up with, uh, another director, a guy named Lance Weiler, who, um, did the last broadcast and head drama, a couple of their indie, indie films. And we started working on scripts together. And then, um, our most recent script actually took us to the Sundance screenwriting lab. Um, and also we took a, uh, the following year, we made a, a short film that was a prequel to that script. And that showed at Sundance that year. Uh, and now our film is in, um, I, I don't know what you call it, development. It's in development. We're, we're getting there. Almost, almost there. So that's a that's a kind of unusual path to take to yeah. decide that uh, novels weren't working for you, and so you'd try something just totally different. Yeah, and and still to try to do it in order to write novels. <laughs> that was the weird thing. I was really cheating the whole way, but it worked. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, most writers sort of dig their own tunnel into the mountain and kind of detonate it behind them. I know so many writers who have. You, you know, there's there's always the expected path. You read the the writing advice books, and they tell you it's A B C D, and it's usually like Z F B. You know, it's like nine, and then, and then a squiggle and asterisk. <laughs> no one ever seems to do it the same way, and no one ever can seem to replicate what someone else did. So, but, but I think that's cool. I think that sort of shows um, and is mirrored in the nature of storytelling itself. 
You give a lot of advice for writing on your website, and a lot of it is very focused on this idea that there is no one-size-fits-all, and yet there you are giving advice on your website. (laughs) (laughs) So so how does that work? Well, I started this blog, Terrible Minds, and I started it at this point now um, 13 years ago, I think. And uh, at the time, it wasn't WordPress. At the time, it was just this kind of rambly HTML installation that my roommate had done. And the goal was, well, actually, the goal was originally to make a community for writers. And I think I decided that, that would be too hard. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to be, it's just going to be all about me. Um, and I used it to sort of scream into the void. I didn't have any metrics. I didn't know if anybody was clicking on anything. And there was a point I didn't really care. Um, I was trying to make my way as a writer. I was just getting into freelance writing. And so I used it as like sort of like a mouthpiece for me to talk through my own writing conundrums, my own little enigmas and problems and challenges and, and triumphs when they were there. And uh, that worked for me. And then once I finally moved over to WordPress, I, I don't know if it was four or five years ago, um, I, I continued that trend. It was still kind of me talking to me, sometimes me talking to like an 18-year-old version of me, sometimes me talking to me of last week or me of, you know, three years from now. Um, and at the end of all of that, it turns out people like to, you know, read that kind of stuff. And I, th- I think the goal is to try to talk about my experience, talk about the experiences of people that I've met and I know, but at the same time, try to make sure that we all see that there's so many different paths uh, up the mountain for this thing. And um, can you give me some examples of the kind of advice you give? Because I know that a lot of listeners for the podcast are writers or would-be writers. Sure. I, I try to cover... Uh, here's the thing. A lot of writing advice is very focused on publishing. They should might as well just call it publishing advice. It's very rarely about the, the, the mechanics of story and the craft and mechanics of actual writing. Um, there's a lot of advice out there about publishing, um, how to get published or what to do when to get published or write the query letter, or how to self-publish, how to design an ebook. Um, and I do uh, certainly talk about those things. I think they're important. I don't, you know, I, this is still a job for me and I consider it to be important to, um, to talk about those aspects. But at the same time, you know, you're not, you can only get to that point of publication and, and what you do about publication when you have ideally learned the craft of, of writing and the, the art of storytelling. And I do sort of consider them that way. Um, and so I, I sort of break my writing advice into those three sort of areas. So it's like, you know, a lot of writing advice, a lot of storytelling advice, a lot of publishing advice, and then a lot of profanity and, uh, you know, scatological references mixed into the, and, and that turns some people off, but I think it turns more people on, so to speak, than it does off. So um, when you were originally looking to form your community of writers, did you have any sense that you were someday going to be part of this community of bloggers and, and the Twitter community and all of the online communities we have now? I, I predicted it perfectly. No, I had no idea. I had zero idea what was going to happen. Um, it's just sort of, you know, the, the entire internet and social media sort of explosion. I was just getting into the internet at that time. I mean, as everybody was, you know, um, and it was still kind of a weird little mystery, sort of a, a maze that, with lots of hidden corners. So I had no idea what was coming, and I know I had a, no idea where I would be. And I mean, right now the blog gets a rather surprising number of hits per day, uh, and I, I never could have predicted that. I, I had no idea. There, there is a very big uh, hunger for writing advice, and I think some people are a little uh down on that idea down on the idea of writing advice every once in a while i'll receive some pushback frequently from other writers who are like well there's no way to do anything it's just and they'll often give some like short shrifted reading advice or writing advice it's like well all you do is read and write a lot and then you've done it and i was like oh well that 
which I understand the sentiment and that the sentiment being that there is no one way to do it and that you can't just like hash this up into little like listicles and make it all so easy. But by the same token, saying that the only thing that you need to do to become a writer is to read and write a lot makes it sound like some, what we do is it's like jogging. It's so easy. You just do it enough and you'll just get used to it. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. I think there's a lot more um, moving parts and, and fiddly bits going on with both writing and the nature of language and the nature of storytelling architecture. There's a lot to talk about there. And then also publishing. The, the total in the ground is constantly moving underneath our feet with publishing. So, you know, I think it's good to talk about these things. And obviously with your experience of being mentored, you know there are things that more experienced writers can teach less experienced yeah, writers. right. And, and there's, there's that other old chestnut where you know what you can't really teach writing or you can't teach storytelling. Um, which, again, I understand the sentiment, but what that does is usually the people who are saying that are usually saying it from a place of either privilege or um, some sort of feeling of loss of privilege that they feel like, well, I'm either so special that I just magically had this ability in- innate in me upon waking up one morning and I was just like, well, I'm magically a writer and I'm really good at it. Or they feel so – they have no sense of self-esteem and confidence in their own writing and so they need to sort of project this sense that I, I, it's, you can't teach it. It's just this magical – muse fairy where I'll just ride the unicorn and we all become magical writers at that point. Um, so I do think you can teach writing. I, I mean, I, I've had teachers, um, professors who have been instrumental in getting me to where I am in my understanding of, of my own voice and my own stories. Um, and certainly there's a lot of other, you know, writing advice books that I've read. I mean, Stephen King's on writing is classic. Lawrence Block's um, books on writing are really good. Save the Cat. I mean, there's just a lot of good stuff. You don't have to use it all. You know, I don't read Stephen King's book and say, well, this is my Bible now and every piece is a tenet, um, you know, religiously adhered to. But you, you pick and you choose. It's like a toolbox. You got to, you know, fight, find the right tools and weigh them in your hand. And what do you get from the social media? Because you spend a, an awful lot of time there. <laughs> I, 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 I think, number one, I, I get amusement and interaction. Um, I don't know. I'm sure that there are very real concrete benefits to me being on social media. I, I, I don't – I mean, I can sort of see that throwing these rocks and creating these ripples, I see how the ripples sort of move together. Just the same, it's not like – I don't have metrics on that. I don't know. I mean, if I have – I think right now I'm up to, and this isn't supposed to be a, a, this is like a humble brag, but it will turn into a sad thing in a second. I have like 21,000, I think, Twitter followers, which is, I'm happy about that. It's not like epic, but it's, I'm very, very pleased about that. By the same token, I don't sell 20,000 copies of my books. Um, and, and, you know, for, if I get a quarter of a million hits on my website, I don't sell a quarter of a million books. So it's right. not like those automatically become, uh, uh, you know, they don't translate into it in an in instant career. For me, it's, you know, just trying to connect with other people and sort of, you know, this writing thing we do is a community and it's a very small community, actually, it's smaller than you think. Um, and so it pays to sort of be out there and talk to people and then talk to readers and interface with the audience and then interface with other um, uh, uh, storytelling disciplines. Like, I, you know, I do like to work in that transmedia sort of weird amoeba paramecium space where it's like you know okay there's film and there's comics and there's game design and novels and i think there's there's value in all that can you define transmedia a bit I've, i hear the Uh-oh. term interstitial yeah. arts a lot and i'm sure. wondering if that's like, sort of the same kind of thing that's actually a cooler term when you start using that one said. <laughs> um interstitial because it sounds like you know it's like it is, it's a mystical almost yeah transmedia is just um uh it assumes a, a, a fragmented storytelling um, storytelling that can be carried across multiple uh, media. Um, there are some 
folks who define it. There's a there's a producers guild, the transmedia guild in Hollywood now, um, and they design uh, define it a certain way. They define literally, I think, how many number of screens it has to be on. Which I don't know. You need to be quite so disciplined in that and quite so um, rigid. Uh, and transmedia is ultimately a buzzword. Mostly, it's just trying to bring a lot of the uh, different uh, storytelling disciplines and media into a, a single storytelling experience. Yeah, I, I work with um, unpublished writers sometimes and writers who want to get agents or self-publish. And I actually found, I was looking for links to send them. And I found that almost all of the links that I send them about story are actually screenwriting links. Like oh, um, yeah. like Film Crit Hulk, of all people, has, has, <laughs> written, some, has written some incredible pieces yeah. about the craft of story uh-huh. um, and, and things like that. So um, do you think it's generally a good idea to, to read outside your own medium as well as outside yes. your own genre? Yeah, absolutely. And learning, you know, from uh, the screenwriting side of things has been very valuable for me, um, both in terms of film and television, because um, both of those things are different models, but they still... Well, I mean, what's great about a screenplay is, both in writing them and just simply reading about them, they're really just blueprints. They're not actually like a novel. A novel is a completed thing. It's the end goal. I mean, you've written it and yeah, it may go on to become a film or a TV show or a game or a comic book or a Denny's diner menu. But whatever happens is it's like, that's, that's your end goal. You've written your story down and it's very egotistical, very authorial. But a screenplay is something that, I mean, it's like a map. It's just a, it's a list of directions. Um, the dialogue and the, uh, the, the action sort of just, it's like real quick. Da, 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 da. And it's not, I mean, there's a director is eventually going to take that and actors eventually going to speak those lines. And you're, what you're doing is you are to use that word interstitially. I mean, you're really creating sort of this, this piece before the piece. And so what happens when you do that is storytelling, the architecture of storytelling is more, um, exposed. It's more, uh, naked for lack of a better term. And so you can start to see, almost like ripping the face off of a pocket watch. You can see how all the gears move. And so in a novel, that gets a little harder. And you don't always want to see it in a novel because, you know, you sort of pack a lot of stuff in a novel. A novel is a, a, a machine gun spray, whereas a screenplay is short enough. It's got to be kind of like a, a focused sniper's bullet. But, you know, the, the novel has so much stuff, so much fog and so many, you know, packed pillowy parts of thought and internal space that it's sometimes tricky to see those really interesting story beats those little weird the mechanics and the architecture of it so i think screenwriting is valuable for that um i also i recently spoke with maureen McHugh, who's an author um who also does a lot of television writing and she said that yeah and a lot of transmedia writing um and she says that uh television writing gave her a lot of discipline because when somebody says your script is 24 minutes long, then your script is 24 minutes long it's not 23 or 25 minutes comics comics are the same way it's it is you've got to hit that you would thread the needle or you're, you're, uh, that's it. It's too bad. And film, film is the same way. I mean, you, you know, if you write a 90 to 100 page script, it's a lot different from writing 120 page. You're adding money. You're adding budget it's when you add pages. It's like you've got to be very careful about just, I'm just going to write a 240 page epic script and no one, no one will ever do anything with that. So. Well, that's why George Martin left Hollywood. He's yeah. like, because he because he kept writing things where he's like, and then yep. you know, a thousand horses, and people were like, no, <laughs> no, you can't do that. Yeah, <laughs> go, now go write a novel, George. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So of course now he's with TV. So yeah, I, I he can think, do all I he wants. He, I think he laughs about I that. Like, sure he does all the time. Yeah. He's, so what brought you up to New York from uh, from Pennsylvania? Uh, tonight I am at a book event for me and a fellow Angry Robot author. T.L. Costa. We have um, our books are out. Uh, Blue Blazes and her book is playing Tyler, and we are signing and reading and dancing or whatever we're doing at the uh, Word Bookstore in Brooklyn. 
Do you like doing bookstore events like that? I mean, do you travel around a lot for this? I don't travel a whole lot for that, but I mean, I do periodically pop up now and again. Like, I haven't done anything so focused as a tour. I do like them. They're a lot of fun. I like meeting people. I think it's a different sort of vibe than what you get online. I think it's very important um, to interface with humans in meat space, um, which is good. No, I, I did a, uh, I was just down in Florida doing some research for the third Miriam Black book, which comes out in December. Uh, and while down there, I thought, well, I want to try to interface. Like, it was a very quick trip. I just sort of threw it together. And um, I said, well, okay, instead of just, just doing research, I'd like to meet some people down there. So I had a friend who runs a museum called the Stranahan House down there. And she said, well, why don't you see if you'll just do an event here? Like, it'll be f- free. I'm not going to charge anybody anything. Just see if people will show up. So I did put out the, the feelers, and I was um, just to see if anything would even happen. I should have expected to show up, and there would be no one there, me, a couple of seagulls, and maybe, you know, one, one guy. Um, but we had, I think, about 20 people um, show up, and um, I brought some free books, and they brought books to be signed. And I talked for about an hour, and it was nice. We were on the river there. It was great. So I, I like that sort of thing. I think it's cool to do it. And it's no pressure for me because I don't feel like I have to be good at it. Like, I know I, know I have to be good at writing books. Like, that's the, the number one thing I'm supposed to be good at doing or writing stories. Um, so when I meet people, it's not like, there's not a lot of social pressure for me. Cause it's like, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's just not a lot. I, I know, I kind of know what I'm getting into with that. And it's not, it's not my job exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming up here and hanging out with us today. Thank you for having me. This has been awesome. It's a real pleasure. It's Chuck Wendig and you can find the Blue Blazes and Unclean Spirits, his two latest books in stores right now. I'm Rose Fox and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, my co-host Mark Rotella is going to tell us about some hot books for fall in the music field. So stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, our very own Mark Rotella, senior editor, is giving us the lowdown on some forthcoming books about music. What have you got for us, Mark? Well, it looks like classical music, uh, which is uh, publishers like to have one or two classical music books on their list. Uh, Last season, we had Paul Eli, who we had on a radio show, uh, with his book, Reinventing Bach. This year, we have English composer and conductor Sir John Elliott Gardner, who's looking at Bach through his own interpretations in a book called The Music in the Castle of Heaven, a portrait of Johann Sebastian Bach. And here he's taking a look at the technical structure of a box pieces, how it's composed, whereas uh, Paul Eli talked about how listeners respond to Bach, how he's been recorded uh, all the way up through the 20th century. And, uh, and, and uh, Gardner's book is not the only one in classical music. So we've got books on Mozart, on Mussorgsky, on Beethoven, uh, a book by John Suket, who talks about the great German composer in Beethoven, The Man Revealed. So the, we've got quite a few books coming out. There's some books on uh, uh, histories of opera. And, and it's, it's kind of nice to see these books that uh, where it, you know for some it may seem like classical music is is dying it seems to be very very much alive and and for for readers uh we've got another book by uh, martin geck by the university of chicago press called richard wagner a life in music and um uh, one other book here uh, actually two i said mozart a life by paul johnson this is coming out by viking and uh, this is yet another portrait of of mozart and then we've got leonard bernstein letters uh 
this is by Nigel Simeone, and this is from Yale University Press, and these are various letters from uh, the great conductor, uh, Bernstein. So we, we've got quite a few classical music books coming out. Now, another one that seems to be perennial favorites is, is jazz, you know, books on jazz. This year, we have, I want to say, four or five big books coming out. One on Charlie Parker, uh, another one on uh, uh, Duke Ellington, uh, the book for, about Charlie Parker by uh, Gary Giddens, University of Minnesota Press, is Celebrating Bird, The Triumph of Charlie Parker. And uh, one of the books that, that I picked for one of my top top 10 books uh, in music this season is Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington by Terry Teachout, who's a Wall Street Journal's uh, theater and music critic. And so we're going to see a lot of books on on jazz this season. Uh, last, Like I said, last season, actually the last two years, jazz books have been kind of few and far between, but I think they're coming back now. No, I'm I'm a big Duke Ellington fan. Actually, I, I was raised in a very jazz focused household, and uh, Duke Ellington was the reason I took piano lessons when I oh, was wow. a kid. Um, though I ended up taking classical piano and never quite breaking out of it into jazz. But I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that Ellington book, if you happen to have some more details there, because um, he was quite a fascinating character. He was, and in this book, uh, Teach Out really talks about. Ellington as as a human. I, I mean, there have been many instances of of his you know, books of his uh, musicianship and his contribution to jazz. And I think this one he talks about his relationship with uh, Billy Strayhorn and uh, music relationship with Billy Strayhorn. Uh, how, and, and if I remember correctly from the review, how Ellington himself borrowed from, or some may say, took from other. Comp- Composers. Uh, he talks about his uh, various womanizing relationships with women. So, so this is and this is a pretty thick biography of of uh, uh, the musician and composer. Well, that sounds quite fascinating. Does it talk about his relationship with his son too, Mercer Ellington, um, who took over the band after him? Because that was definitely a big part of his life. Teachout does talk about his son, both as you know, Ellington as a father, uh, whenever he had the time to be a father, all the way through up. You know, through uh, his sons uh, being part of the band, and uh, so another thing is this is the fiftieth uh, anniversary of the Beatles uh, coming to America. So, nineteen sixty-three uh, announced two thousand thirteen. So we have quite a few Beatles books, and while there have been great books written on either McCartney or the Beatles or Lennon, uh, Spitz was one of them, uh, we've got a book, Algonquin is coming out with The Beatles Are Here, 50 years after the band arrived in America. Uh, writers and other fans remember uh, remember the Beatles, and this is by Penelope Rowlands. Uh, and then from Black Dog and Leventhal, we have all the songs, and this is uh, apparently a story. the story behind every Beatles release, uh, what the song was about, uh, what inspired the song, why the song was recorded and how. And then we also have Tune In, The Beatles, all these years, and this is by Mark Lewison, and this is apparently the first volume in a trilogy of books uh, about the band. And uh, I'm just going to go down the list a couple more just to give you an idea. The Walrus and the Elephants, this is by Seven Stories Press, John Lennon's Years of Revolution by uh, James Mitchell. And uh, we have, this is one, this has been a big, I, I think people who followed the Beatles and the Stones always like to debate who's better, 
better, the Beatles or the Stones? Who do you like better, the Beatles or the Stones? And this book is called Beatles versus Stones. And this is a historian and a diehard fan of both bands. Uh, talks about uh, this rivalry in music of, of you know the two uh, great British rock bands of the uh, 60s. Now, um, one of the things that caught my attention in that list was the author of the first book, Penelope Rollins. I don't think I hear about women writing in the music field very much. A lot of the big books that come out seem to be books by men. Is that just uh, that I haven't encountered them, or is that something that's true of the field in general? You know, there's um, we, we tend to think, uh, just like with sports books, uh, men writing books about uh, music, uh, especially when it comes to rock and metal, uh, you'll have, uh, you know what, it, it kind of goes across the board, but you do have quite a few women writing about uh, various movements. We just have one on the Runaways, uh, which even though it was a, a, an all-woman band, this is uh, where Lita Ford came out and Joan Jett, written by a woman. So, so you do have women historians, and we have uh, there have been a couple who've written on Bruce Springsteen and um, uh, a couple of other prominent figures. But you're right; they're, they're they're far and few between, but they're out there for sure. Good to know. And we also have, and I'm just just we have two books on ACDC, one by Mick Wall, uh, and 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 for some reason ACDC seems to be making a comeback, perhaps because metal also, uh, while ACDC isn't necessarily well, it is heavy metal, but not metal in the way that Metallica is. But we've got a lot of books on Metallica and a lot of books on metal. Uh, the history of metal is another one that's coming out that we've got a great review from. It seems to be a big audience for this, and a lot of it is an underground audience, people who just love death metal or uh, dark metal or black metal or just the history of metal starting from Metallica. And um, this seems to be coming up too. And these are like a lot of bands coming from the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Are there, when you say there's there's been a bit of a revival, is that just a revival in interest or are there new heavy metal bands that are on the rise? Um, if there are, I'd like to know about them. I'm actually, I'm a fan from way back. Oh, great. Yeah. It, it seems like red, uh, metal seems to be entering the, uh, before it was just kind of the, the, the band of the uh, disenfranchised, the music of the disenfranchised. And now, as I myself have been going to a few metal concerts, uh, I've been seeing a lot of the uh, New York literati set in there, you know, dark frame glasses, just kind of appreciating this music. And it's very odd to me. I mean, just, just you know, they're like standing up against Right, you know, along the line of mosh pit with other uh, with metalheads, just 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 thrashing about. So it's been it's been kind of interesting, and I've been seeing more and more written about it, even in the New Yorker uh, and and other magazines about various metal bands that have coming up. So it seems to be uh, making a little bit of a comeback, especially with the literati. So <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> That's very peculiar when when the counterculture becomes the culture. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And but with music, I mean, uh, I, I think this happens happens a lot where, where people just like to revisit history and to take a look and, and kind of this uh, this appreciation from afar. So and uh, so I think those are basically the trends that we have in music. It's really, you know, a, a pretty rich list. And one other book I want to mention, and this is a little bit on, on, on the downsides coming up by DeCapo. Uh, Howard Soans is coming out with a book called 27, a history of the 27 club through the lives of Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain, and Amy Winehouse. And yes, of course, these are all musicians, singers who died at age 27. And it seems to be this very 
large and growing club. And, and this is a book that's going to be coming out in November that, that I think will offer some good stories. And one that is kind of interesting, uh, uh, Eminent Hipsters by Donald Fagan uh, will be coming out and talking about his, his life in music. And um, this is something that he's, he's writing uh, in, in chapters, in short chapters, about not just his musical influences, but his literary and TV influences um, and, and, the, and the formation of the band Steely Dan. And I think that's what we've got for uh, music coming up. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that roundup. It's good to be reminded that music really is just such a broad, varied category that encompasses a great many different types of books, types of music, types of writing. Um, and those definitely all sound like interesting titles to keep an eye out for this fall. They, they do show a great breadth of culture, too, from classical to, like I said, to pop to uh, metal and uh, punk. So... I'm Mark Rotella, and that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your questions on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwklyradio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 